0: Well, happy Valentine's Day. Hopefully I didn't remind anybody about that. Everybody is fully aware of that already. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. That's primarily where we will be, starting at verse 12. If you want to open up there now, that would be okay. That would be a good idea. I'm reverting back to my pre-COVID ways, and so we're not going to have a lot of Verses or anything like that up on the screen for you. I did produce a, an outline. It's a very basic, bare-bones outline for you. Just broke, it, broke our text down into three parts, really, an introduction, and then two points. And it's good, I think, for us to just have simple worship. Uh, we have all these bells and whistles right now that, you know, many generations before us didn't get to have. Big band, all these instruments, technology, and it very, me- very well may be the case that that sort of gathering might be in the future for us as well, too. So we should just have a simple, easy worship being in the Word. I hope, so, I hope that's okay for you. If you don't want to take notes, you don't need to, but you will need a Bible. If, um, if you don't have a Bible today, there are Bibles on the back table. Feel free to borrow one. We're totally good with that. Now, church, to begin, I I wanted us to think about something, and that is this, that if, if you were to survey any social media platform today or this week, February 2021, and you were tasked in this search to find out what it is that Christians believe, I think that you would have a very hard time doing so. It's not that I mean, if you really want to find out what Christians believe, you go to the Bible, right? But what I'm asking and what I'm saying is if you were to go on social media, any of the different options that you have, and try to determine from that what Christians believe, you would have a very difficult time figuring that out. People are all over the place today with what it means to be a Christian. Personal views and opinions and personal opinions abound in such a way that it is not hard to find two different people saying the exact opposite thing concerning a specific topic when it comes to the Christian view. I'm not simply talking about doctrinal differences at this point. Uh, I'm not meaning like the difference between baptism that a Baptist and a Presbyterian might have. I'm not talking about the different eschatology positions. You know, we all, have, we all might have differing views of the millennium and the end times. I'm not talking about those sort of theological differences that people might hold to with conviction in contrast to what another believer holds, which we would disagree upon, yet still affirm them as a believer in the Lord. What I am speaking of are moral issues. I'm thinking of ethical issues, and make no mistake, moral issues and ethical issues are absolutely tied to theology. They're absolutely uh, attached to doctrine, and we're going to see that in our text. But what I'm meaning for us to think about right now is the law of God and what it says is right and good and true. And what you see in our world very commonly today is that one person will call something good... And then the very same thing, another person will call it evil. And we know what the Bible says about calling that which is evil good and what is good evil, don't we? Is it woe to you who do that? And I I don't mean Christians disagreeing with the lost here either. With the worldly, with the carnal, with the pagan philosophy of secularism. We shouldn't be surprised to see disagreement there. I'm speaking about people who profess to be Christian that have polar opposite views on what constitutes as biblical Christianity, biblical morality, people that profess to be Christian who don't yet seem to believe what the Bible says about a particular matter for some reason or another, and you end up having this shallow and superficial religion that masquerades as Christianity, but actually is in fact not it. It is not Christianity. It denies Christianity as a whole. And I'm not, I'm not just thinking of the fringes of society in 2021 here. I mean on popular levels, this shallow, unbiblical, secular, culture-driven version of Christianity is, is very popular right now. Consider even the President of the United States, a man who needs our prayer, of course— And I know that he is a Roman Catholic, and therefore there are major differences between us and him, so much so that we see them as rightly needing evangelism. But even still, he reads from the same Bible that we do, and much of the world sees the Roman Catholic uh, Church as representative of the Christian faith. So consider this man's regime even. And it is, it is a regime. If we take a look at what's happening in our culture and society right now, the way that he is using his office through all these executive orders and these policies, it's right to call it a regime. But think of what he's putting forth. He is pro-abortion, and yet he's claiming to be a, a Christian. He's even reinstating the policy to take U.S. money to fund abortions overseas in other countries, all under the guise of women's health mind you, as crazy as that sounds. His uh, vice president is worse, Kamala Harris. She uh, is praised by Planned Parenthood. That, that should be all that you need to know. Planned Parenthood released an article about her saying nine things to love about Kamala Harris from the, this organization of death. And she's a Baptist, supposedly, actually. The whole regime is anti the imago Dei, the image of God, with their support of the LGBT movement agenda and the the transgenderism that is taking our culture by storm. There's a high probability that they're going to pass what's called the Equality Act. We see versions of it in other nations already, where it's going to be very hard to live as a Christian and to stand for the truth when those types of things do pass and get put into play. And certainly, this man still confesses to be a Christian, and many in his party do, his regime do as well. We read on articles in places like NPR and NBC, CNN, the New York Times, USA Today, even the, the Harvard Letter, all have articles saying that his policies are shaped by his Catholic faith. It makes no sense. He, he was sworn in on the Bible. He even quoted Augustine in his inaugural speech Yet he and those associated with him calls that which the Bible calls evil, good. And this is not just a Roman Catholic failing. You may have heard recently or seen that Baylor University, that popular Baptist college in, in Texas, Waco, Texas, not San Francisco, California, where we would maybe be surprised about hearing this, but Texas has recently voted to approve of its first LGBT charter. They're calling it Gamma Alpha Epsilon. And if you know the Greek alphabet, those letters spell out, they look like they spell out in English, gay, G-A-Y. This is a Baptist college where Baptist parents send their Baptist children to receive an education, calling what is goddess that is evil, good. And then not to mention the rampant sex before marriage that is in our culture and the the, the hookup culture that we live in in our circles, the, the recent scandal with Ravi Zacharias... It's also tragic it's not christianity even though it goes by that name and consider an album that made it to the top of the charts last week not that all of the christian artists on top of these charts are stalwarts of the christian faith by any means i'm not saying that but early last week the number one christian album on itunes was held by a woman named grace baldridge And she identifies herself as an openly queer performer, and her label or her album has an explicit lyrics on the label, on the album, the number one Christian album on iTunes chart. It's dumbfounding. So what does it even mean to be a Christian anymore if so many of those professing faith live and make decisions like the lost? Well, we're not the first society that's ever had to deal with this sort of problem. We're certainly not going to be the last, that is, either. And the Apostle Paul has been dealing with issues that are very similar to these kind of issues within the church in Corinth. Uh, We have a new section that we're going to be looking at and addressing this morning. Uh, It'll last for at least another week, maybe two weeks. I'm not sure how the breakdown will end up being when Pastor Nick uh, picks it back up next week in which he's addressing in this section the sexual immorality in the Corinthian church, as well as our theology of the body. And the passage that we have for this morning is going to lay kind of the groundwork for the things that he's going to say through the rest of uh, chapter 6 and leading into chapter 7. So we're going to read the whole section this morning because it's a unit. It's really a unit. Verse 12 through 20 is is a whole unit. But our focus for this morning is just going to really be verses 12 to 14. The first three verses. So we'll read and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. So the reading of God's holy and inspired and sufficient word beginning at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute, becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we know it challenges us. It is living and active. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would grant understanding, that you would increase faith, that you would give belief, and that you would conform us to your word. Help me to handle it rightly, Lord. Get me out of the way so that we may hear from you in the text and that you might be exalted in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so as I was saying, um, when we come to verse uh, 12 through 20, we're actually coming to a new section, to Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And many commentators, they actually struggle with finding the connection between this section and the previous one. Now, it's true that the Apostle Paul has dealt with sexual immorality, or porneia, in this letter before. But what seems to be the case now is that he's turning his attention to a specific example of porneia once again, different from the example that he mentioned earlier back in chapter 5. Uh, a specific example of sexual immorality in the church. And this makes sense to me at least because of the previous uh, verses that we addressed last week where they mentioned this list of moral violations, uh, this list of sins that the apostle makes the point and he says, remember, such were some of you. Such were some of you, implying that you, they no longer are this in Christ. And now the problem for our text is in view because there are some people who are professing to be Christian and therefore they should no longer be held captive and, and defined by the sins mentioned in verse 9 to 11, and yet they are. They're indulging in such sins that if they continue in them, it will show that they are not actually inheriting the kingdom of, of heaven, like he wrote about there in chapter 6 and verse 9 to 11. If they don't, by God's grace, repent from their sins, that is. And so in this section, it was seen that the apostle is dealing with very, very specific cases of immorality. If you remember, actually, from what we just read a moment ago, verse 15 to 17, Paul talks about people being joined to a prostitute. And so commentator Gordon Fee is probably right when he notes that there were people in the community that were going to prostitutes and arguing for their right to do so. Being people of the Spirit, they imply, has moved them to a higher plane, this realm of the Spirit, where they are unaffected by behavior that, is merely, that merely has to do with the body. So they were justifying their sin, in other words. And so the apostle moves the apostle Paul moves from the prior conclusion of affirmation which says such as were some of you to a frontal attack to this theological position of his this church here in Corinth where they are justifying their sin. So in other words, it's very possible that Paul is dealing with a situation in reality that should be very very shocking to us it appears that some in the Corinthian congregation were actually justifying with theology they're going to prostitutes. And the justification most likely went like this. Well, we are are so mature and spiritual that we just live on a, a special plane of enlightenment that what we do with our body is actually irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And I think that is true because of how Paul makes his case in his argument in verses 12 through 20. The other thing to notice by way of introduction is that what Paul is doing is not simply taking on an ethical issue. It's not simply a moral issue. There certainly is moral matters being discussed here, an issue of immorality of porneia, but for Paul, and so for us too then, the issue of sexual immorality is not just an ethical issue. It is an ethical issue, But it's more than that. It is a profoundly theological issue. It is a profoundly gospel issue then. It's not just, you know, don't do this and and don't do that because you can get an STD. It's not simply don't do that because it's not pleasing to God. Don't do that because for Paul and for because of God's word, there is something much, much bigger at stake when it comes to this issue of sexual immorality. And what is that? This section of 12 to 20 provides for us a Christian theology of the body. This is a message that needs to be heard today, friends. We live in a culture that downplays the holiness of a sexual union and sexual purity. And so you have, I mean, there's apps that exist on your phone that are designed to promote a hookup culture. Pornography is often only a URL away, and many of the websites in which that you can access with pornography, are free. They're even just simply uploaded by people themselves. Uh, Statistics show that among millennials, so the younger age group, uh, even among evangelical millennials, and statistics, you have to take them for what they are. They're not always true representations. But statistics show that there's a severe laxity when it comes to sexual purity, even within the church. The statistics between the world and the church are actually nearly the same. One should have a worldview that is formed by God's word, and yet apparently it doesn't. Not at least with this, not with this case. And so we live in this sensually charged culture, and it's not that previous verses or previous cultures didn't commit fornication. Certainly they did, but it seems like they knew it was wrong. Uh, Premarital sex was held as wrong. Hooking up with people was wrong. Yet, people did it, but there was this consensus, especially among Christians, that it was wrong and it was outside of God's will. And it just doesn't seem to be the case anymore for many of us. I mean, even think about one of the the clearest statements concerning God's will in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He makes it so clear, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Do people even believe that anymore? Now, Though it would seem for many that immorality is just par for the course, that it's normal, but that actually should shock us. It should awaken us so that we're not using our physical bodies because we're not people, many people are not using their physical bodies as God intended. I mean, you've heard this before, haven't you? It's my body's my choice. You've heard that before. That's, that's a popular mantra in our day. That's the sort of evil culture that we live in now. And the Apostle Paul is giving us here a better way, a Christian theology of the body that will remind us of the dignity of the body and the place of the body in God's redemptive purposes and the way in which we are to worship God through our bodies. And church, don't think that this is just a message for the young people. They don't think that this is just a message for millennials. It's one that they need to hear, but it's also one that we all need to hear. Because you know what? No one is too old to sin against the body. I won't go into the details because you can find them online if you wish, but Ravi Zacharias, a very famous apologist, he passed away last year at the age of 74, all the while concealing and indulging in sexual sin. And his legacy is ruined. It's tragic. He has victims, and he was professing to be a Christian. Friends, I can't stress enough how important it is to be attached to a local church and to be accountable when it comes to living the Christian life. And, and Ravi was an old man and still failing to offer his body as a living sacrifice. Or think of uh, Cornelius Van Til. I hope that you're aware of who he is. He is uh, he's with the Lord now. He passed away some time ago, but he was a very influential pastor and professor at Westminster Seminary in Philly. And for, uh, for many years, he contributed there to the view of apologetics known as presuppositionalism. His, his works are kind of difficult to read, but it's worth your time. I would, I would commend him to you. But in his biography, he noted that he would even, in retirement, have students from the seminary come over to his house, uh, young men training to be ministers, and he would mentor them. He would pray with them. And at one of these meetings, one of the younger uh, men, studying to be a pastor, asked Dr. Van Til. He said to him, he said, now that you're past that that age of those kind of temptations, what is that like? (laughs) So You know, this young man, you know, he was probably acting out of sincerity, you know, desiring that he's not going to have to struggle this way when he gets older. And so Van Til looked at the guy and said, young man, the sins of my old age are the sins of my youth. Sometimes you don't know outgrow sins, church. And so we need to, by the grace of God, put sin to death before temptation is acted upon. And so, so Paul gives us a theology of the body here and hence a theology of sexual morality that we need to make sure we hear and that we follow. So let's take a look at verse 12. The outline is simple, really. I mentioned that we have two problems in view, a wrong view of freedom and then a wrong view of the body. Verse 12 sets us off to consider this first problem. Now, I don't know if you all have the same reaction to the beginning of verse 12 that I have had over the years of reading this, this text, but it is striking. It is shocking, even. Look at how verse 12 begins. "All things are lawful for me." Like like what? All things are lawful? Does all mean all here? It it can't be, right? The apostle has just spent the better half of six chapters explaining that the Corinthians were engaged in behavior that didn't match their profession of faith. They formed factions around their favorite pastor or apostle for their own personal gain. They operated from human wisdom rather than the wisdom that the Spirit supplies. They had among them a man who took his father's wife. Was, Was that lawful but simply not helpful? Is that what Paul is saying? Was it lawful for the church to do nothing about the sin of the incestuous couple? Or what about taking another believer to the secular courts to solve a dispute? Isn't that dependent again upon the wisdom of the world rather than upon the wisdom of the Spirit? Or what about the list of sins used that used to define some of them that were mentioned in verses 9 to 11? The such were some of you sins. Is the Apostle Paul now wanting to say that all of these things are in fact lawful, but simply not helpful? And that's the reason that we should abstain. Now, at first glance, this phrase does sound very Pauline, doesn't it? All things are lawful. If you're familiar with the Bible and the way that Paul writes and speaks, this sounds like something that Paul would say and and has said something along those lines before. Uh, Pastor David Strain from First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi notes that Paul has insisted in various places in the scriptures that the ceremonial commandments of the law revealed to Moses no longer apply in the new covenant age and they don't bind the consciences of Gentile or Jewish for that matter Christians. So think of the text from the call to worship this morning that Pastor Nick read. Romans 14, verse 14 said, I know and I am persuaded that in the Lord that there is nothing unclean in itself. It's kind of similar to the phrase that we read here in verse 12. And there in Romans 14, he's speaking about food offered to idols and his liberty to eat of it. Plus, we understand that we are free in Christ, don't we? Uh, Galatians 5.13 says that we are called to freedom. Galatians 5.1 says that for freedom, Christ has set you free. It's not just the Apostle Paul though. Peter has very similar ideas, very similar thoughts given to him by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.16 instructs us to live as people who are free. And the Apostle John notes in his gospel that the truth will set you free. So at first glance, this, this statement here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, sounds like it could be something from the Apostle Paul or another Christian leader, but does freedom in Christ mean that everything is lawful? And the answer to that is, a, is absolutely not. It's a resounding no. There are many things, in fact, that are not lawful for the Christian. The first, again, the first six chapters of Corinthians has laid out a number of them. So what we have happening here is a pervasion of the truth in the Corinthian church. And some of our modern English translations help us here, actually. If you're using a King James Version this morning or a New King James Version or an NASB, you won't notice this in our text. But if you have an ESV, the translators did something to help us understand what is happening here. Or if you have the NIV, which, which, you know, I don't know if you want to admit that to me, I guess. But they, they make it really clear, at least. The NIV is not bad here, to be honest. Does anybody notice what you have with the phrase, all things are lawful for me, both times in verse 12? What do you see? What's, what's, in, what's on the text? Quotations. There, yeah, I saw. Thank you, Carol. Quotations. It's in quotations. The New American Standard, the KJV, don't put quotes in it. And the NIV actually adds, you said, at the end of it, to the phrase. So what we notice then is that Paul is actually correcting something that the Corinthians are saying in this manner, or in this matter. What you have with this phrase is, a, is another Corinthian slogan. Uh, it seems like they had a number of these little axioms or phrases that define them. Remember the horrible one from about a little bit over a month ago about wives and mistresses? They have these little slogans, these axioms that gave them license to sin is, is, what it, is what it ultimately boils down to. There were these little pithy statements that drove them subconsciously. And so Paul's not saying here that all things are lawful for him, but it's the Corinthians that are holding to this principle and Paul is correcting it. But what's the source of it? Where does this little phrase come from? All things are lawful, all, all things are permissible, its origin is debatable. There's not a consensus on where this phrase comes from. Some believe that it, come, that it came from the Stoic philosophers of the age. There are slogans from that philosophical group that sounded like this, that are similar to it, that place a greater emphasis on the spiritual matters than, than bodily ones. But I have a feeling that it's actually a misappropriation of sound biblical teaching. And that happens a lot, even in our time. It was probably a perversion of something that they have heard before from Paul or from Apollos or from Peter. Like I already mentioned, this statement, all things are lawful for me, it actually sounds Pauline. It sounds like Paul at first glance. And I I purposefully only shared part of the verses that I read earlier trying to to give you that that feeling that this sounds Paul. I did that on purpose because there's more to understanding Christian freedom or liberty than some sort of universal law that says everything is permissible at, at the bare level. That's not freedom at all, actually. So consider Romans chapter 14. Let's turn back there in your Bible just the book right before 1 Corinthians it should be very easy for you to find verse 23 in Romans 14 but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin so from that we can we could conclude perhaps that nothing is in itself sinful But at the same time, wait, anything that doesn't proceed from faith is actually sin. You see, there's this contingency included that may have been overlooked by the Corinthians if they heard that teaching or a teaching similar to it. If it doesn't come from faith, well, then it's not lawful. And there are many things, many actions and many choices which don't come from faith, which come from our flesh, as it were. Or you flip to Galatians because I mentioned some passages from there. So turn to Galatians, just a couple chapters over in your Bible to the right. If you get to Ephesians and Philippians, you've gone too far. Come back to Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, it's not simply freedom that is before the Christian, but there is also a yoke of slavery that is before us. And the context of the passage here is in view of returning to the law as a means of our justification, that the law, and be clear about this, the law is not a means to save us. We are free in Christ. Christ has saved us all by himself. As someone famously said, all that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary But it's not as if the law after our salvation is meaningless. It's not as if we can just live contrary to the law and think that then that everything is lawful. Look down at verse 13 because I mentioned that earlier as well. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's exactly what the Corinthian church was not doing, right? Or they were doing that, I should say, I suppose. That they were using their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. They were visiting prostitutes and claiming that they were free in Christ. That is not lawful. Or what about Peter? I mentioned him too. And we know that Peter had some influence in the Corinthian church as well. Turn to 1 Peter. It's, it's beyond Hebrews. Then James, you'll come to 1 Peter, get to 2 Peter or the John's epistles, turn back. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, the the Corinthian church should have never felt justified in their sin. Such were some of you, is what the Apostle Paul had just told them. The Christian has no business indulging in sin. There is no excuse we may offer for it. We can't appeal to freedom in Christ in such a way that all things universally are lawful. That's not what Jesus or Paul or Peter Or any biblical author whose words are, in fact, inspired words from Jesus meant in talking about Christian freedom and talking about Christian liberty. And so there are two problems that the apostle is addressing here, is addressing here in our text. And the first one is the wrong view of Christian freedom. But how did the church get there? How did they get there from, I mean, consider their teachers who they mentioned earlier? They had Paul, Apollos, and Peter. Could you have better teachers? it would be hard you'd be hard pressed to. How did they arrive at such a place where they felt they could justify the visiting of prostitutes under the guise of Christian freedom? Well, it seems like there's an obvious reason. How do you get from sound biblical teaching? And again it's not like they had false teachers, how do you get from sound biblical teaching to horrible application? It's poor listening. They were bad listeners. They were isogetical in their listening. They they took what they liked and they ignored the rest. They, they were cherry pickers, in other words. They took the parts they liked, and they just remembered those, those parts, and they neglected the rest. And if they just would have remembered that helpful hermeneutical tool that you don't need a seminary degree to know, then they would have not been in this situation. You know that hermeneutical rule, don't you? We've talked about it before from this pulpit. The three C's. Context. And her friend, Context. And the other friend, context. Remembering that would have prevented them perhaps from trying to justify their sin. And so let's say that the Corinthians basically latched on to some of the things that Paul or Apollos or Peter said, and then kind of getting excited hearing, oh, everything is lawful. They just forgot the rest of the instruction that would have grounded them in orthodoxy, right doctrine, and orthopraxy, right living it would have grounded them in biblical faithfulness. And when that doesn't happen in the life of a believer, when we don't listen well, when we just take the parts of something we like at the neglect of the rest, it will end us up in a ditch on one side of the law of God. Remember, Paul's not wanting them to obey here so that they will be saved. But he's compelling them to obey because they have been saved. They are professing to be saved, but they're not acting like that. And from Paul's point of view, he can't see the soul. He can't see the heart. All we know by a person's uh, salvation and profession of faith is what their life looks like. So Paul is cautioning them. He is warning them to live a life that matches their profession because right now they're not. And when people who profess to be saved don't live in a manner consistent with their salvation, when they don't live in a manner consistent with the revealed Word of God, they're always going to be in one of two ditches concerning the law of God. They'll either be what we call a legalist or an antinomian. And legalism and antinomianism are much more than doctrinal positions. They consist in, in part in how we feel towards God. The law plays an important role in your life, friends. It, it, it consists in the way that we feel towards God, our Savior, our Creator. Classically understood, a legalist is someone who would add to God's law. They say that if you want to please God, not always earn salvation, because obviously that's wrong, but if you want to please God, then you have to do this or you have to do that. They impose restrictions where God does not uh, restrict. So, for example, a popular one that we have in the church today that's been a popular legalist position for many years is that you can't drink alcohol at all. That's not a Christian position. The Christian position is that you should not get drunk. Uh, you're free to make the choice to abstain from alcohol. That is a good choice for many. It's, it's a choice worth supporting. But you can't impose that upon another believer. The Christian command from God is that you're forbidden from being drunk. And so to say that a person can't drink at all would be legalism, but that's not the Corinthian problem in this situation. They're, they're not technically being legalists in the classical description of it. The other ditch would be antinomianism. Anti meaning against, nomian, nomia meaning law, nomianism, so against the law. And so this position simply disregards what God has said is pleasing to him. It says, well, I don't have to do this or that, or that such a law doesn't apply. And it's this category that Christians fall into when they disregard God's law. Sometimes it comes from a wrong view of grace, doesn't it? Remember Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? What does Paul say? Certainly not. And other times, a person might be an antinomian if they have a wrong view of freedom. and That's what we have here in the Corinthian church. That's what we have in our culture when people indulge in sexual immorality and, or they improve of it in others, and at the same time they profess faith in Christ. They end up becoming pluralists who take from the world's wisdom and the Bible, but ultimately end up denying the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Now, Sinclair Ferguson has a helpful book called The Whole Christ. I would commend it to you. It's about the, what's called the marrow controversy, which involved a Puritan by the name of Thomas Boston. And in it, he points out the root of both legalism and antinomianism is the same. This is insightful. So, so listen to this he says that it is a fatal pastoral mistake to think that legalism and antinomianism are as complete opposites. In other words, it's not like the difference between up and down or a positive and a negative. He says that they are like, quote, non-identical twins from the same womb. In other words, they originate from the same place, but they simply go in opposite directions. But the root of the error is the same. And we could trace them both back to the lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden, namely that you can't trust the goodness of God and that his commandment to our happiness and well-being and and, and that and therefore will be missed out. And so you have to find it some other place. If If we obey God, we'll be miserable. That's the lie of Satan. And so the legalist creates new laws to try to be happy and the antinomian essentially creates a new law to replace what God actually did speak. And either way, we move from God's law, Christian. We end up putting ourselves into a yoke of bondage. True Christian freedom lies in obeying God. And remember what Jesus says, it's very helpful, it's very clear. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. You see, true Christian freedom doesn't lay in us being the master of ourselves. We are free in Christ to love God. We are free in Christ to obey God. We didn't have that freedom before God came to us and he washed us and he sanctified us and he justified us. We were slaves to our sin in that condition before we were regenerated and born again. We were by nature children of wrath and our minds were at enmity with God. But in Christ, friends, he has given you freedom. That would compel the 4th century bishop of hippo saint augustine to write love god and do what you will love god and do what you will it's so simple isn't it now let's just think of it from the perspective of the corinthians they were doing what they willed were they not they were sleeping with prostitutes but was that loving god it's not a trick question it's not a hard question no that's not loving god not at all they weren't keeping the commandments in doing such a thing. And this is the seventh commandment that's in view. You shall not commit adultery. All sexual sins are caught up in the general equity of that commandment. If you remember, the commandments of God, the moral law, teaches us how to love God and how to love neighbor. The first four commandments teach us what it means to love God. The last six commandments teach us what it means to love our neighbor. Well, it's impossible to love God apart from also loving your neighbor because those last six commandments about loving neighbor are from God for us. If we're not loving our neighbor well and right, then we're simply not loving God because he's the one who instructed us to do this to our neighbor. And failing to love our neighbor is, is ultimately disobedience to God. So this statement coming from Paul or another one of their teachers, which they have taken out of context, this idea of all things are lawful for me, It it would not be about something that clearly violates the moral law, the commandments. It's not lawful. It's not right to violate the moral law. That is sin. Sin is lawlessness. Paul is very clear about the law of God and its role in the life of the believer. In many places, he makes it clear that keeping it doesn't justify us, yet that the law is good and our keeping it honors God and is our response in love to God for Him saving us. So then that begs the question, In what ways are all things lawful? Well, Gordon Fee in his commentary points out that this, he says it this way, this kind of statement coming from Paul, all things are lawful for me, would only apply to non-essential matters of conscience, to gray areas, in other words. There are issues that will come up in the lives of of the Christian that are simply conscience issues. Uh, Pastor Jesse Johnson has a good definition of matters of conscience or gray areas. He says that these gray areas, they are issues where believers may, in good conscience, end up on different sides of the issue, yet both sides be without sin. So the statement which the Corinthians took out of context would be true and applicable in gray areas, areas that are non-essential, areas that the law of God is not specific on. So for example, maybe one modern example, uh, COVID restrictions would be a, a gray area. Believers should not bind the conscience of other believers on them, no matter where you fall on the topic. You shouldn't make make someone to pass judgment on themselves by forcing them to to hold what your conviction is on the matter. Because either choice, to affirm or to deny the restrictions, is not necessarily sinful. You're free to view view whatever way you want it to, to be viewed. So the statement... All things are lawful for me is not an absolute statement. It doesn't mean everything is permissible for us. It's true in gray areas, but there are certainly things that are not lawful for Christians to be a part of. And the Christians, these Christians in Corinth, understood it wrongly. They cherry-picked it, they took it out of context, and now they're using it to justify gross immorality. And notice what the Paul says, and notice what Paul says. He says, but. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But not all things are helpful. Not all things are profitable, in other words. And the idea here is that everything isn't advantageous. Everything doesn't benefit you. Not everything is useful. All things are lawful when we consider gray issues. But when it comes to the breath of God's law for us and our freedom, we need to know that not everything is helpful. Some things will actually put us in a yoke of bondage. The Apostle Paul is saying that our conduct doesn't simply depend on whether we have the right to do something or not, but our conduct as Christians um, actually should be beneficial to those around us and to ourselves. And certainly, if we're engaging in something that or if we're approving even of something that is contrary to the law of God, then there is no way that it can be beneficial to ourselves or to anyone else. And so the Corinthians were waving this banner that said, everything is permissible for me. And Paul turns around and he says, actually, no, you know what? Not everything is good for you or for others. In other words, you need to quit doing this. He'll be clearer later in the section, like at verse 18, and he's, he's telling them here and now, though, that there are bigger concerns and considerations in your own sense of what is right. So then Paul reiterates the slogan about freedom once again, and then he provides a second rebuttal to it, saying, I will not be mastered by anything. See, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. As beings created by God to glorify Him and enjoy Him, we will either have God's law over us, or we will impose our own laws over us, which in fact end up enslaving us. So Paul's rebuttal to this is, I will not be dominated by anything. You may think that everything is permissible, but let me tell you, I have a different ethical principle than that is that I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I'm not going to let anything take control of my life because God is in control of my life. And he's getting at a very important point here, that is that often people who indulge in things even things that are indifferent, even things that are not inherently sinful, under the guise of liberty, will do so in such a way that will actually enslave them. I can do this. I can do that. And Paul says, you know what? I don't do anything that will enslave me. I won't do anything that will get mastery over me. I will live in moderation. I've learned to stop. Do we ever stop and consider that ethic? We need to govern ourselves by the grace of God. And there's all kinds of ways in which we may allow ourselves to be dominated by something, even something that is not inherently sinful. Uh, sports, social media, politics, our work. These are, there are all kinds of things that aren't inherently sinful, which we could allow ourselves to be dominated by. Many years ago, probably a decade ago at least, um, I came across an online computer game. I don't remember if I was the one who discovered it or if it was some of the young men from the church that turned me on to it, I don't remember. But we started playing this game called Lord of the Rings Online, LOTRO for short. And I remember playing it, it was a uh, Shane Evans, Jared Malekish, Josh Reither, and Eric Reither. And we would all go play this online video game. It was a lot of fun. You got to be like a different class of a character. You could be like a a champion. Jared was a, he was a champion. His name was Six Pack Abs, which, you know, (laughs) makes sense, Jared. Um, Shane was a guardian. I was this captain character. And you would go on these big missions. You would fight orcs. It it followed the storyline of the books. And it was really good. It was a lot of fun. Well, you go on these long raids. You get different weapons, different armor. Upgrade your character. It was, you know, it was a good time. Not inherently sinful or anything like that. Well, eventually they all stopped playing, but I continued on. And I remembered um, one time after feeling that I was not doing some of the things that I knew that I should do, and I was, you know, very though, you know, I had I had to get home because I had to go be there for this raid. I had to be, you know, part. I had to finish this mission. And so just over time. I started noticing incrementally that the game started getting more and more control. You know, I had to finish the mission or whatever. And I'm not saying it's inherently wrong to play lotro. I still play it from time to time. Even it's funny. Anna was just making fun of me because when I had COVID, I was uh, I put on the movies and I, then I would play the game. That's kind of usually what I do when I get back into it. I watch the movies and then play the game. But I'm saying that there is this ethical principle that the Apostle Paul is appealing appealing to here that says whatever we do. Whatever we believe we have the liberty to do, we only do it if we maintain the liberty and don't become enslaved to it. Even matters of conscience aren't to rule us. And this goes for a lot of things, right? There's lots of ways in which we may do this. So Gordon Fee notes in his commentary, and this is really good, he says, There is a kind of self-deception that inflated spirituality promotes. Suggests to oneself that one is acting with freedom and authority, but which in fact is an enslavement of the worst kind to the very freedom someone thinks they have. In other words, there is this piety, this inflated spirituality that creates this self deception that says, What I'm enslaved to is actually my freedom. But you're not free, you're enslaved. So the Corinthians had taken the statement out of context that enabled them to think that they were free to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. And so they put themselves in bondage. And and Paul points out, believers don't live like that. That's not how a believer lives. That we don't think like that. That doing so simply makes an excuse for sinning. And so Paul's point is that the uh, Corinthian Christians should not do that. Christians don't think like that. They don't live like that. He says, listen, Corinthians, we actually have standards. We ask ourselves, even in matters of liberty, we ask ourselves, is this profitable or is this enslaving? And if this isn't prof- profitable, and if it enslaves, then we apply biblical wisdom to the matter so that it would remain profitable and so that it doesn't enslave us. And for some of us, that might mean just cutting it out altogether. You have to apply biblical wisdom to the matter. And for the Corinthians, their sexual misconduct, it turns out, was neither helpful nor freeing at all. It's not even a gray area. It was purely enslaving. There's an excellent book by the Puritan Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. I love that title. In it, he offers help to saints who want to live in true Christian freedom and not get trapped in it in sin. And he says this, this is good advice. He says, If you would not be taken by any of Satan's devices, then walk by rule. What rule do you think he could mean? The commandments. He says, He that walks by rule walks most safely. He that walks by rule walks most honorably. He that walks by rule walks most sweetly. Amen to that. That's the right view of freedom. Then, in verse 13, notice, quotes again, right? It's another Corinthian slogan. Oh, good. I'm sure this one won't be a train wreck. So on the surface, this one seems harmless at least. But this is the second problem the Corinthians had, which is being addressed here. They have a wrong view of the body. So look at what it says. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. That doesn't seem so bad. It's just kind of common sense, right? So the implication is just this. When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. Unless you're fasting or for some reason or this, unless you're tormenting yourself with a diet. I don't know. When you have an, applica- an appetite, though, it's not complicated, complicated, you eat. When you have a desire for food, you eat. There was this idea in, Corinth, in that the Corinths had which said, God made these stomachs to be full, so you just, you know, let's be fat and happy, in other words, if you so choose. I'm not advocating for gluttony, of course, but more of a eat, drink, and be merry, that kind of an attitude. But where did the slogan come from? Maybe it's from the abrogation of the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws. Maybe since in the New Covenant, all food is clean, there is a slogan concerning food. And we know that the Corinthians had some problems with food, right? When we get to chapter 8, we're going to see that they, they struggle with eating food to, to idols, some of them. So maybe it's kind of in light of that. Maybe it was just a pithy slogan so that they would, that they would say, meaning that eating food isn't a big deal, whatever it is. It's just something very basic about it regardless of the source of it and that's this that natural desire is to be satisfied food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food but you can see the corinthian application of it can't you you can see the way that they would move from the food being for the stomach and the stomach for food that they move to a much larger implication a much larger implication concerning excuse me concerning what we might consider a desire in the body and in fact, we know this is the case because of what Paul says in the next couple verses. But here's the heart of the Corinthian slogan. Just satisfy the desires of the body. We're free in Christ, so satisfy what the body wants. You see how this is a theological issue, right? So think of the topic that the apostle is dressing and then just swap the words out. Sex is for the body and the body is for Sex. So just as the sure thing is being hungry and then filling the belly is a natural thing to do, you have an appetite and then you satisfy that appetite. What difference does it make whether it's food or sex? I mean, it's just the body. What's the big deal? That, this is what the Corinthians are thinking. This was the mindset that they had. They had a wrong view of freedom and they gave, they gave them a wrong view of the body. And the next part of the text is probably part of the slogan too. Some commentators think that, in the, in the ESV at least, it's not in the quotations. He says that, the God, that God will destroy both. Meaning, the body, the stomach, and food, and the idea behind it goes something like this: Well, what's the big deal? If the body is just going to be destroyed, what does it matter? Just live, you know. You're free. You can imagine someone arguing like that, right? I don't have to imagine. Even I've heard that very same argument myself in today today's age. People don't think it's a big deal when they sin. They will say, after all, oh, it's just sex. I mean, God gave us these bodies, and it's a natural desire the body has. It's common to mankind. Aren't we supposed to satisfy our desires? If we're hungry, we eat. Why not the same with sex? The the apostle is not even dealing with homosexuality in the text, right? But this is the same sort of reasoning that those with same-sex desire employ. They'll say, well, I was born this way. This is just what I desire. This is the way God made me. If I'm desiring this, then why shouldn't I act on it? Satan employs the same tricks in every age, doesn't he? The reason you shouldn't act upon that desire is because that desire is contrary to the law of God. Because God's law trumps our desires. We don't trust our desires as Christians. We don't follow our heart. We know our hearts are wicked. We live by faith. God's Word is what instructs us, and God's Word tells us where we are to honor Him through sex. It's in the marriage bed. And outside of that, you're in sin. And so you can see how ideas have consequences, right? The Corinthians have this faulty view of freedom and that all things are lawful and look at where it's them. Ideas have consequences. Bad theology has consequences. You know, if we survey the landscape of Christianity, of Christian culture at large in our day, it just it seems like there's a lack of care for the truth. That's why, of course, you have so many people professing to be Christian and yet they support lifestyles of immorality. There is this plurality, this syncretism, and and all of it, all of it is a denial of the truth. And watch out, because if you wish to stand up for the truth, well, you're just a bigot. You're judging, and who are you to judge? Those are the kinds of things that people will say to you when you decide to stand up for what God has said in His Word. And make no mistake, we are to make judgments. Don't be deceived by that. We're to make righteous judgments, not by appearance, but by the standard of God's Word. The apostle is making judgments here in the text, isn't he? Just a few weeks ago, we read how Christians are supposed to judge those within the church. It's because there is a standard that we bear. In gray areas, we attest to the truth that all things are lawful. But contrary to popular belief, not everything in this world is a gray area. There are black and white issues that we live with. God's word is crystal clear about what is good and what is acceptable and what is pleasing to him. It is crystal clear about what is sin. There is absolute truth and there are standards and the Corinthians are not seeing it. I'm almost done, baby girl. I'm almost done. So what Paul is dealing with here are people who are committed to a certain kind of conduct. And so they're looking for certain ideas to help them support their conduct. We do this, too. It is a behavior in search of a supporting theory. And Paul's response is that it doesn't work that way. For the Christian, that's not the way we work. We don't put ourselves above God's law. God's law directs us. It is over us. Verse 13, the body is not made for sexual immorality. We don't start with a behavior contrary to the law of God and then argue it into correctness. And it doesn't matter what slogans we put over it. Maybe you want to think of it with a modern example, a modern analogy. It would be like the guy living with his girlfriend, and the pastor confronts him on it. And his reply to the pastor is, Hey, you know, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. You've heard that slogan before, right? And Paul would say, What's your point? Okay, Christians aren't perfect, we're forgiven. That's a true statement. But that's not an excuse to indulge sin. That's not how Christians live. Christians don't embrace and make excuses for their sin. We can't. We've been changed by God. And God doesn't let us live like that. He grants us repentance over sin. The 1689 London Baptist Confession puts it like this. This is point three, four, and five from chapter 15. There we read, this saving repentance is a gospel grace, in which meaning it only comes to us through the gospel. It says, In which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their sin by faith in Christ humble themselves for it with godly sorrow, hatred of it, and self-loathing, they pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. Ver- Chapter 4, point 4, repentance must continue throughout our lives because of the body of death and its activities. So it is everyone's duty to repent of each specific known sin specifically. And then Article 5, God has made full provision through Christ in the covenant of grace to persevere believers in their salvation. Thus, although there is no sin so small that it is undeserving of damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. So, if you go later on and you look up the 1689 Confession, chapter 15, you'll see there's all these verses attached to it as well too. It's helpful. But you see, the Christian, the point is, is that the Christian doesn't excuse away excuse away his sin. We repent of it. You know, what causes believers to excuse away their sin? If it's not clear yet, I, I apologize because it must be my fault. But it's bad theology. Bad theology is what causes believers to excuse away their sin. And again, therein lies the Corinthians' problem. They have a wrong view of freedom. They have a wrong view of the body. And because of it, rather than fleeing sexual immorality, they are running headlong into it, visiting prostitutes. Something that you just, you don't even think that would happen for a Christian. Yet that's what's happening here. We can't play around with false thinking and bad theology. So Paul offers this corrective. The body is not for the body The body is not for sexual immorality. That's not why he made it. It's not for adultery. It's not for sexual sins. It's not for you to simply obey whatever unholy desires you think are natural. But what it is for, and this is interesting, the end of verse 13, the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now at the face of it, not abundantly clear, but as we work the rest of the section in the next week or two, I think it'll be more clear. For the first part, the body is for the Lord. The idea is that when God saves us, he requires all of us. When God saves us, not only is our mind for the Lord, as Paul talked about in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, but our heart must also be for the Lord. You know, the, the Corinthians would make such excellent American evangelicals, They would say, oh, but my heart is for the Lord, Paul. He would say, but what about your body? You can't separate those things. There's not this pagan dualism for us. All of your being is for the Lord when you're in Christ. Your eyes, your tongue, your mouth, all of your members are for the Lord, for what he has said is right. Paul puts it like this in Romans 6. You might be familiar with this passage. 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. They could have, the Corinthian church could have stopped there. Case closed for their problem already. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, knowing the Corinthian church, they probably would just latch on to that last clause of verse 14. Well, I'm not under law, but I'm under grace. to To neglect the previous statements made. And many people today in our culture, in our own culture, parade around that clause. Well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. So they might justify their sin. And it's many. And they're wrong. they're taking it out of context so what is our body for it's for the lord our members are to be used for instruments of righteousness how does romans 12 begin you probably remember romans 12 what is supposed to be a living sacrifice our body right our body not you know your cat your body is a living sacrifice but also this is interesting more interesting the lord is for the body Perhaps not as clear, and I think it's because the verse divisions, which aren't natural to the original text. But think of how the Lord might be for the body in light of verse 14. where Verse 14 says, And God raised the Lord, and the Lord will raise us up by his power. Lord here, by the way, is referring to the Lord Jesus, not the Father at this point, or the Spirit. But when the Lord, through his death and resurrection, died, he died not just for our souls, but for all of us, for our whole nature. We aren't just a body or just a soul. We are a soul and a body. Christ didn't live and then die and then live again just for your soul, but he also did that for your body. This is a, a full-orbed redemption that he's speaking of. Think of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, in verse 23, where he's, he's talking about the whole creation is groaning for the redemption that is coming. And he says there that, that even we, even Christians, are awaiting our adoption as sons, which in a sense we already experience now. We're already truly sons and daughters if we're in Christ. But there's another sense in which we are awaiting our adoption as sons. And what does he say the adoption is? He says we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. In other words, the glorification of our body. The fullness of your redemption in mind doesn't happen until these bodies are redeemed. I was just talking with Brother Jack the other night actually about this same thing, how saints who have died are currently in glory with the Lord in a disembodied state. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to be a disembodied person, but that's the reality. People don't get their body until Christ comes back again. And that's even people that are going to hell for eternity and people that are going to be in heaven with the Lord, the new heavens and the new earth. So it's fascinating to think of the details that go along with that, but we're way over time, so we'll save that for 1 Corinthians 15. These bodies in Christ are for the Lord, and the Lord is also for the body. He's actually promised not to redeem just the soul, but our body also, our heart and our mind, all of us. And just as Yahweh, just as Father, Son, and Spirit all had involvement in raising up the Son, He's also going to raise us up by His power as well. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. And this means, and hopefully I'm not being too simplistic, but it means the body's important. God made it. Scripture outrightly rejects a pagan dualism that elevates the soul or the spirit above the body. They both matter. Our great hope is that this perishable will put on the imperishable, that this mortal will put on immortality, and that we will be changed. This isn't too hard for God, church. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Uh, Our bodies were created good in creation. And yes, our bodies were affected by the fall. But our bodies are also impacted by the redemption that Christ applies to us. And so our bodies matter now as well, what we do with them now. There's going to be more implications for us as we continue to go through this section. But you need to know, Christian, how Paul closes this section. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. We'll read that in the coming weeks, but what was that price? It was the life and death of the Son of God. He lived in your place, obedient to the law of God, fully righteous, and then he went to the cross to bear the weight of your sin, to bear the weight of the curse that you were under, so that you might be set free. True Christian freedom is found in you abiding in Christ and his word, and abiding in our glorious Savior. And may we have the grace to do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you care about all of us, Lord, not just our soul. We know that our bodies matter even. And so we pray that you would help us to use our members as instruments for righteousness. Let us not be like so many in our age today. Let us, for Christ's glory's sake, not buy into the lie that we can just simply follow our hearts or our desires which are contrary to your word. Instead, give us a clear understanding of what your law says and help us to remember the gospel always as well, that we are dependent upon you and that it is by Christ and his righteousness alone that we are saved. Yet let us live out of that place in such a way that would testify to love for you and love for neighbor that ultimately at the end you might be all the more glorified and exalted. You are worthy of praise and worship, Lord. We thank you for loving us so perfectly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.